worship team. Uh, I hope you are like me. You enjoyed that. Uh, the ladies quartet and Chris. I don't know if that means don't need guys or Chris alone equals four girls. I don't know what that means. Uh, now I really appreciate it. We, we're very thankful we've been able to rotate various people uh, into the worship team. And uh, I know we had like an iron four during the uh, COVID where you couldn't come. And uh, so we're very thankful to be able to mix in some others and uh, give them some breaks along the way. And again, just uh, add voices to our choir in essence. And we join our voices with them. Matthew chapter 11, if you would join me there. Uh, Matthew 11, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, all three of those songs, I was thinking each one of them would really, in their own way, ties into today's text. Uh, and I'll not revisit all of those songs, but each one, if you were to go back and listen, ties into this. The unique thing about today's text is that I, more than any other week, really, I think. So just kind of give you a little behind the scenes. My Bible has, it's pretty good about breaking down paragraphs. And when it has longer sections of narrative or paragraph, then I may have to split it up. But this one was particularly hard to figure out because the way my Bible lays it out is just verses 1 through 19. That's way too much to try to cover on a Sunday. So I go to kind of look at some sources that I will review before I preach to you. And they were all over the board. Some of them covered 1 through 6, verse 1 through 6, like we will today. Some, some covered verses 1 through 9. Some covered 1 through 15. Uh, and so finally I thought, you know what? Uh, probably going to look at 1 through 15. And then we'll split that into two parts, the Lord willing. Uh, the next time we should be looking at 7 through 15, if I had to guess, as of right now. Uh, also, just before I read the text, there's about three places at least that I find that when we're reading this, it doesn't flow like how you think. Like you'll read a phrase and you think something should follow that and something different follows that. And so I'm going to read it a little unusually today and I hope I'm not harming it. And I will along the way read it as it is. Um, and remember that chapter 10 was the second great discourse in this book. So getting ready to read the text. Here's, what, here's the, the background. Jesus has, out of his many disciples, has called out 12 apostles. He empowered them. So he didn't just call them. He literally gave them power. Power to heal people of all diseases. They now have his power to do that. They also have his power to cast out demons in people. He even tells them in chapter 10 when they go on this short-term mission trip to raise the dead. That's a pretty astounding command that he gives them. And then they end up, some of them end up doing that later on in their ministry. I cannot re-preach the four weeks things, but notice he's instructed them. So we talked four weeks of the various parts of instruction. Here's your short-term assignments, very unique. Don't take money with you. Don't, don't necessarily take pay. Just trust the Lord. Uh, you're being sent out like sheep among wolves. It's going to be very, very dangerous. You're going to be persecuted. So it's not just their short term. This applies to anyone through the ages who is evangelistic and is, uh, takes part in pioneer missions. So expect persecution in all of its various forms, but don't fear your persecutors. It gives us three reasons. And then he says, oh, by the way, don't have wrong thinking. I've not come just to bring, bring peace to the world. I've came to bring a sort of division. There's going to be those who truly follow God and those who do not. And they're going to oppose you. 
but you're going to side with me. I want my people to choose me more than comfort, more than family. Uh, he says, you're, you're going to take an attitude of you're going to die on a cross. You're going to take up your cross. You're dying to your self-will. And he closes out the instructions by saying, anybody that receives you and your message about Jesus receives Christ and the Father. And anyone who supports those who are doing the work of God, God's taking note and God rewards those who support those who are doing the work of God. Verse number 1, chapter 11, let's read down through verse 1 through 6. Matthew writes, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, they went out and began to minister in amazing... That's not what the text says. When Jesus... Here's Matt, the way Matthew does it. Here's his focus, and he stays very much on point to what he's been doing the whole time. His focus is Jesus. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he doesn't even say here what he says back in verse 5, that they're sent out. Mark and Luke are going to cover a little more of the being sent out. And when they come back and all the great report of what happened. Not Matthew's concern here. Matthew's one of the twelve who was sent out. He just kind of bypasses that focus. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. I'll go ahead and mention this. There's kind of three sections in these three ver six verses. It's verse 1. It's verse 2 and 3, and then there's 4 through 6. As you see on your handout, I have not made verse 1 its own point. I'm going to be very brief there because we've already covered, this is a transitional summary verse. It's very generic and very broad. And I've already preached the points of Jesus' teaching and preaching and his ministry back when we hit chapter 4, verse 23, and not so long ago when we were in chapter 9, verse 35. So I'm not going to delve heavily back into that. We're going to move on very quickly in a moment to 2 through 6. So now verse, so again verse 1, he finishes instruction, and Jesus continues on with his ministry. Verse 2, in that time period, now when John, this is John the Baptist, this is not John the youngest disciple, brother of James, this is John the Baptist. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, so John's in prison, he keeps hearing about the deeds of the Christ. Notice verse 2. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he rejoiced at all the wonderful things that God was doing. That's what you would think would be written. That is not what's written. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples. Luke says he sent two of his, two of John's disciples. He sends them out. He's in prison. Sends two and said to him, you guys go ask him this. And I know John hated to do this. But he has to. For his own sanity. For his own conscience. You two guys, go ask him. I've been hearing these reports. I need you to go ask him this. John wants us to ask you, Look back at verse 3. Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John wants us to ask that of you. Are you the one who is to come? He's been hearing things. He needs to know, are you the one who is to come? Or do we need to look for another? Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, you go tell John to get his act together and stop pouting around 
and get his faith right, and he should know this. Go tell him I said, that's not what happens. So three times now I've misread the text, how I would assume the text would have been written, but that's not what happened. Verse 4, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Well, what did they hear and see? Verse 5, you go tell John this, the blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor, who have nothing good to look forward to in life, especially in that day. I know we have poor in our day. In their day, the poor, hopefully some fresh baked little bread, not wheat bread, barley bread, not as good, but hey, has some decent taste. Maybe if they could see their kids laugh and play, their kids don't yet realize how poor they are. That's a little bit of joy. Other than that, not a lot of joy in life. Jesus says, you go tell John, the poor have good news preached to them. They actually have something that is hopeful. And oh, by the way, one more thing I want you to tell John. You tell him, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Tell John, blessed is the one. Who's the blessed one? Blessed is the, is the one who is not offended by me. So guys, this week, uh, again, I not only struggled with which verses to cover, I'll admit I struggled with this passage all week. I wanted more from it. Uh, full transparency. It, well, it's not been my favorite passage, right? I just kind of read it over and over. Uh, I think it was Friday night. I mentioned this to Deanna. I said, yeah, just really struggling. It's not really coming together. Maybe it was Thursday night. And she says, what section is it? I said, well, John's in prison. And he said, that's like one of my favorite passages. I'm like, well, great. Great. You got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of it yet. And uh, stuff, maybe you should get up. And say, oh, yeah. And she starts going, oh, yeah, I taught a lesson. This. And I'm like, I'm not that excited about it yet. Just, just be honest with you. I'm like, really? Lord, what, what's in here? It's real teachy, really teachy. And there's going to be lots of teaching going on in this. Notice verse number one. Let me just get there. It said already, we're not going to spend a long time. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, chapter 10, he went on from there to teach and preach. So we know that teaching is explaining. Preaching is calling for a verdict, calling for action. Repent, respond correctly to the teaching. So Jesus goes on and does his teaching and preaching. As I've already tipped my hand, I'm surprised at the direction that Matthew goes. He doesn't follow him and the other 11. He doesn't say, these two went together and these two, and they went to that town and that town and that town. He stays focused on Jesus. So they go out and do their ministry, but Jesus doesn't say, there, I've got six teams instead of just me doing it all. We've multiplied the ministry. I'm taking a break. No, we've multiplied the ministry, and Jesus still has his own ministry. And Matthew, as he's telling the story, stays focused on Christ. He doesn't like go autobiographical and start saying all the wonderful things that he and whoever his partner was experienced. Mark and Luke allude to their, their successes. In fact, D.A. Carson writes the following. He says, there is no mention of the return of the twelve. I could add to that, there's no mention specifically of their going. And then he says, there's no mention of the return of the twelve. Since their early successes are, are, less, are, are of less concern to Matthew than is Jesus' teaching. I find this interesting. Matthew wants to stay focused on Jesus. He doesn't talk about his own expedition and short-term mission trip, but here he brings in John. So why are we going to cover verses 2 through 19, this focus on this issue with John? Catch it. This fits Matthew's purpose. 
Do y'all remember Matthew's main purpose? His main point of the whole book. He wants people to know who Jesus is. And this fits that purpose. And so he's going to stay on point. So I didn't want to give that a main point, so let's move on to number one. It starts in verse two. These are simple today. These are the exact way you would phrase these points, so nothing fancy or super insightful from me. Just keep it simple. Number one, John questions Jesus' identity. That's very clearly what happens in verse 2 and 3. John questions Jesus' identity. Would you look at verse 2? Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he asked this question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we, shall we look for another? So again, verse 2. What, what, do we, what do you notice immediately in verse number 2 that we have to address? Did you catch it? Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, what needs addressed? Why is John in prison? Raise your hand right quick. Don't say it out loud. Raise your hand and you think, I know why John was in prison. You know, many of you say, I remember. By the way, he'll not get out. He's not going to get out. Uh, he will die. He will eventually have his head cut off. Matthew, in his unique style, does not tell us right here why John is in prison. He's actually alluded to it earlier back in chapter 4 when he says the imprisonment of John caused Jesus to go northward into Galilee. Pay attention. Knowing that in chapter 4, verse 12, taking all that has been said from chapter 4 through chapter 10, we're going to assume that a year has now passed by that he's been in prison. Why is he in prison? Hold your spot. Flip over to chapter 14. Look over there. Chapter 14. Look at verse number 3. We're going to find out why John is in prison. John the Baptist, verse number 3. For Herod, this is Herod Antipater, whose nickname is Herod Antipas. So watch this. You had Herod the Great. Oh, yeah, he tried to kill Jesus back when he was a baby. Herod the Great dies. He has all these sons by all these different wives. And the Romans split up his kingdom that he had. None of them ever really had the title of king, but some of them have the title of Tetrarch, apparently like a fourth or a quarter of the rulership of what Pop had. So none of them are ever as great. So you have all these half-brothers because they each have different mothers and their father's Herod the Great. This man's name is Herod Antipas. Watch verse 3. Why is John the Baptist in prison? For Herod, he's the teacher, one of the four. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias. So this is a woman. He puts John in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. What does he care about his sister-in-law? Why is that so important that he's put John in prison? Because John, watch the wording here, had been saying. This not one time. John said one time to him. No. John had been saying to him, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Why is John in prison? If you're taking notes, John's in prison because as a true prophet of God, he is unafraid to preach against sexual sin no matter whose sexual sin it is. And in his day, that got him thrown in prison. Boy, in our day, is there any sexual sin in the land? Sexual sin is rampant in our land. But let me say this. It is so protected by our society, you better be careful about speaking and preaching against sexual sin. And you might want to be careful about getting specific about whose sexual sin you preach on. But I didn't take the time. Boy, it was in my notes and I deleted a whole page. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, probably because that's, I'm in 1 Corinthians in my devotion. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes those Corinthians, there was a sexual sin. Paul says he's very upset. They're arrogant. They haven't dealt with it. He tells the church, deal with this. Kick that person out of your membership. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the body that their spirit may be saved. So apparently they're saying, this man who's done this horrible thing and has not gotten it right claims to be a brother in Christ, and if he is a brother in Christ, then turn over his body for the destruction of the, fl- of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved and kick him out of the church. And he had written an earlier letter where he says that the church is supposed to deal with sexual sin, hold each other accountable. They thought he was talking about the world, the outside world. And he says, no, God will judge the outside world for their sexual sins. We're talking about in-house. We need to hold each other accountable. This is not today's message, but let me just say this. About the fifth week in a row. <laughs> I've lived half a century, and I'm going to tell you, I've never seen a time like today where so-called Christians, people who claim to be Christians, are coming up with the most creative and convenient reasons to live together. It's, it's not, I'm not talking about the unsaved person who doesn't know any better. I'm talking about people who say they've been saved a long, long time, and they have all these reasons to live together. John's in prison because he called the leader of the land. I think his attitude was this, Herod, how dare you? Again, I don't don't think this is because he's just a random person. It's because he's a public figure. And I think it's not just a public figure. It's a public figure over Israel. That's John's problem. Read what I've typed. John's attitude was, how in the world could Herod Antipas pawn himself off as a leader of the Jews, but he's dismissed his wife, he's divorced his wife. Why? Because he goes to Rome, and while in Rome, he comes across again his, his sister-in-law, right? Who's, and it's his sister-in-law, and he lusts for her so much so he seduces her, wins her allegiance to him, steals her from his half-brother, Philip I, brings her back with him, back to Palestine, tells his actual wife, I'm done with you. I'm t-. And John comes along and says, that is unlawful. How dare you claim to lead the Jewish nation when you're living like that? And what did it get him? It got him landed in prison. And again, I would remind you, he's been in prison by the time we're in Matthew 11. He's been in prison about a year. This is important. I think it's wearing on him. He's been in prison for a year, and it's really wearing him down. Notice verse number two again. So we notice, first of all, why in the world is John in prison? Now we know why. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples with this question. And they said to Jesus, Watch this, it's important, because I'm going to point out some honest things about John, but I don't want to say too much. I want to give him credit where credit is due. And he said to him, and said to him, here's his disciples, are you the one who is to come? Notice, John, in his doubting, never doubted that the promised Messiah from God was coming. He never doubted. Is the Messiah even coming? I'm even wondering. I think it's all a hoax. He never does that. He knows the Messiah's coming. Here's where he's at. I know there is one to come, but the reports that I'm hearing about Jesus are making me wonder, is Jesus the one? Are you the one? I know he's coming. Are you the one? Because this is, this is important. You say, Jeff, why is this so important? Christianity is built on a belief that the man Jesus of Nazareth is 
the Christ. He is the Messiah. Watch. He is the man Jesus. There's a real man. The Old Testament named Joshua. New Testament named Jesus. This man, Joshua Jesus, the son of Mary and adopted by Joseph, that particular man is the son of God. He is the lamb of God. He's the savior of the world. Christianity's built on that. And now John here is rocked in his faith. He's questioning I mean, a core belief of Christianity. Hey, if you take away what I just said about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, you don't have Christianity. You can't have Christianity. And John is questioning this doctrine. So now look again at verse number 2, and then we're going to go into this next little section. So when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. I wish you had time like, like I did this week, just to read this over and over and really think. Now think with me for a moment. All right. He hears about, he's in prison. He hears about the deeds of the Christ and something in that causes him to think, is Jesus the Christ? I ask myself, what are these deeds of the Christ that he's hearing that's causing him to wonder, is Jesus the Christ? What are these deeds of the Christ? Well, here's the problem. Matthew doesn't tell us what they are. And John doesn't say the specific things about the deeds, the report that he's hearing about the deeds of the Christ that is causing him to doubt. So he doesn't list them. So now I want to propose four things that I think. By the way, again, you'll notice this. So here's let's kind of full disclosure. Only the two middle dots on your handout are actually going to be deeds of the Christ or non-deeds of the Christ. The other two, I think, though, influence what those two things that those two middle dots, these other two about John are going to influence how that affects him. And really, can I say it this way? They're going to exacerbate in his mind the intensity of what the Christ does. So, number one, let's write this down. Jeff, what do you think are these deeds? Of the, what's the dynamic that's causing him to doubt? Number one, I think partly, this is not the main thing, but I think partly it just has to do with John's in prison. And why is he in prison? He's in prison for proclaiming, boldly proclaiming the truth of God. Now, guys, I went back later on, and I ended up handwriting a lot of things on the back of this paper, and so I'm going to go a little slower here than I thought on this first point. But let's put ourselves in John's shoes for a moment. Can I make levels? I want to make levels here. Broad general statement. There is being in prison. You're like, oh, it's no fun. There may be someone here, you were in jail maybe for somebody listening, guarantee someone's listening, and it was years. There's being in prison, horrible. But if you're used to being in the house all the time, maybe, maybe alone all the time, and you don't really get out, that prison would be horrible. But what I'm trying to get across, what that would do to a man like John, who doesn't even live in a house. This man lives in the desert, in the wide open sky. And all of a sudden, to put him confined in a cell, day after day, week after week, month after month, it's been a year, that's going to mess. Prison. There's being in prison. You commit, right? Uh, 
Second psychological level is being in prison for a crime that you didn't commit. There are people in prison. They know they didn't do this. They're falsely accused. But at least in their mind, they know they're dead wrong, but they think I've committed a crime. That's why I'm in here. This guy commits a crime. That's why he's in prison. This guy, they think I've committed a crime. Then there's the third psychological level, and that's being in prison Not for a crime, but for specifically doing the will of God. Do you see the levels there? Is that not for a crime? And why are you in here? I told him he ought not be married to her. And that got you in here? You just told the truth. You're a preacher of righteousness. I know. And God lets you in here? Yeah. I don't understand. Turn into a year. Apparently ends up in there about two years before his head is finally cut off. That'll play with your mind. I want to go a little further in that, though, because, hang with me. John is a man of great faith. He knows what he knows. We're going to see this later. John knows what he knows about Jesus. He goes in. He has great faith. He knows what he knows about Christ. He knows he did the right thing. He took a stand for God and truth. He said the truth about Herod Antipas and Herodias. Guys, I want to propose that being in prison has some indirect consequences. And I want you to feel these. And then I'm going to conclude by making a specific application of these. You would add more. But if I were to put myself in prison and start thinking, what would that indirectly start doing to me? Number one, these were not in time to be put on the handout. These happened Friday morning or Saturday morning, I believe it was. Number one, John is most, catch it, he's mostly cut off from positive and reinforcing and edifying interaction with other believers. That's important. You with me? What would happen to a believer in prison? He's cut off day after day, week after week, month after month. He's cut off from edifying fellowship with other believers that is building him up, reinforcing him. That will take its toll. I need everybody to listen. You get cut off or cut yourself off from other believers, that will take its toll. We are meant to go feet to feet, feet to feet, face to face. We are meant to go, some of you, all of you right now, in essence, are shoulder to shoulder, receiving the same teaching, looking at the same passage. We're doing a Bible study. You're shoulder to shoulder. We're meant to go feet to feet. We're meant to go knee to knee. In other words, we're not just going to stand and talk. We're going to sit and bounce it around. We are, we need that. We are wired for that. He's cut off from that. Second thing about him being in prison, he's totally unable to perform ministry in the way that he has been used to doing, in the way that he's been accustomed to doing. Christians, believers, are wired to serve God by serving people. John's been doing that faithfully. Now he can't do it at all. He's cut off from serving. Number three, being in prison, I'm reading between the lines here. I'm pretty sure I know human nature. He's going to eventually feel forgotten. At first, we can't believe this, doing this. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to write petitions. We're going to rally. We're going to riot. We're going to, we're going to get our signs. And then weeks go by, and fewer people are doing it. And then weeks again turn into months, and all of a sudden, inside the walls, he's occasionally talking to some of his disciples, but not a lot. And in his mind, he's going to start feeling forgotten. And I'm going to tell you what that does to the mind. Was it even worth it what I did? Did I do the right thing? Because it landed me in prison. And one other thing that I believe is an indirect consequence of being in prison the way he was is very real. Don't discount this. 
demonic forces especially attack believers when we are isolated and alone. Now think through those. Cut off from positive, reinforcing, edifying fellowship with other believers. Unable to minister. Starting to feel forgotten and cut off. Demonic forces singling you out. May not even know that's what's happening, but man, they're singling you out. These things will call even a wrong in the faith person to eventually hit a point where they start questioning things. And can I say it this way? Overanalyzing life and reaching wrong conclusions. I think that's where John's at. Can I tell you another group of people that I'm afraid could be in danger? We're in the middle of a pandemic, and there are true Christians that are, for months now, have been cut off from face-to-face, knee-to-knee, shoulder-to-shoulder fellowship. And praise the Lord, you're watching online. I want to tell you something. If that goes long, long enough, I don't care who you are, that's going to have an effect on you. Secondly, you say, well, yeah, but we're so thankful and we get a lot. And, hey, we are praising the Lord for technology. But we're missing something if we're just looking at a screen. Secondly, you're not ministering when you're looking at a screen. We are wired to minister. If you don't do that for long enough, all of a sudden, and especially if you're used to doing you start feeling unproductive, and you start thinking to yourself, I don't have a purpose that plays on the mind. I believe this is driving John not crazy, but it is really agitating him. It's taking him to a place that he doesn't anticipate. Those who are whether having to be or choosing to be. And I know I've now just, I'm going to make somebody upset. If you are being cautious and consistently cautious through your life, and because of that, you have chosen to stay home, then And use the COVID thing. I just got to get out. I just got to get around the Lord's people. I just want to come to church. It's like the only thing I do all week. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. I appreciated that. Now, please take everything I've said with the balance, right? I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'm just saying, be honest in all areas of your life. Don't be hypocritical. Don't pull the COVID thing just for church and you're living out among everybody else recklessly or however you may look at that. Boy, I got to move on. Demonic forces... Why is John, I'm in chapter 11 again, why is John going through this? What's leading him to this question? I believe John is well aware how Old Testament saints who've been in prison. He knows they've been persecuted, imprisoned, even, even killed. John is not.
how the Lord wills. Are you him? Because I thought things were going to change. Can I offer number two? Something about the deeds of the Christ troubles John the Baptist. Could it be this? I don't know. Jesus seemed to live a lot looser than John. Jesus lived looser than John. You're at the early part of chapter 11. Flip over a page or across the page, wherever it may be. Look at verse number 8. They say he has a demon. That guy is so strict. He has a demon. Verse 19, Jesus telling facts. The son of man, that's the title he uses for himself. The son of man came eating and drinking. John's not eating or drinking. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, you can't trust what they say, but Jesus says, here's what they say. Look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I wonder if this is playing on John. John. Watch, John lives very, very strict. John has a narrow, strict diet. John fasts a lot, probably at least twice. You understand, this guy is probably not a meat eater. It's his lot in life. It's his calling. He eats locusts and honey. I mean, that's where he, he just lives out in the desert, doesn't have a house. How do you even stay alive? Well, I don't eat on that day, and I don't eat on that day, and I fast sometimes in addition to those two days. How do you? I eat these things. I hunt them down, pull over these rocks. I, it's good stuff. But you don't eat it, and you don't, don't eat all of that. Do you drink? The, I don't drink anything that's from the fruit of the vine. I don't even drink grape juice. Then there's Jesus over here. He's not fasting. He's feasting. He doesn't have a narrow, strict diet. Now, he doesn't break the Jewish, you know, kosher code. But, boy, he has a much broader, and he eats more. And apparently he partakes of that, which is the fruit of the vine. We'll talk about it when we get there. And everybody over there is accusing him of being a glutton. Wrong. Accusing him of being a drunkard. Wrong. Those are both sin. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But I wonder if John's like, now, hold on. Are you him or not? I'm living this way, and you're, I'm getting these reports you're living that way. Number three, could it be that in John's thinking, something's not measuring up because his expectation is different than what he's hearing in this instance? Write it down. Jesus hasn't implemented his visible kingdom to this point. And on top of it, he sure doesn't seem like he's in a hurry to implement his visible kingdom. This is really puzzling to John. I didn't have it on the screen. I may flip back over there just for a moment. John has preached. Catch what I'm saying. John has been preaching that when the Messiah comes, oh, by the way, that's him. His name is Jesus. There's going to be blessing. What's the particular blessing? Anybody remember? 
When he comes, he says, I baptize with water. When he comes, he will do what? Baptize with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. He's going to bring an outpour of the Holy Ghost. I flip back in my Bible. You'll not see it on the screen. John's preaching. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. He's talking about judgments coming. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, these are people, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here's John. He's like, I've been preaching this. There's supposed to be some blessing, Holy Spirit being poured out, and there's supposed to be some judgment. You know what? I'm, all I'm getting is reports of some blessing. But it's not even the blessings that I told everybody when the Messiah comes, there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's been no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's no setup of a visible kingdom. There's not any judgment. I know the, the Messiah is going to be bringing judgment. It does not have, Are you him? Are you really him? You're living like this. I live strict. Are you him? I'm in prison over here. You're not. Are you him? Very confusing. Let me give you one more. And we'll need to develop this one just for a moment. Can I offer to you that John correctly identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, but he doesn't understand all that that means. John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God correctly. He is the Lamb of God, but John doesn't know what that means. Once you've written that, would you turn over with me 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll find our way there in our Bibles, very important. I told you today is going to be a lot of teachy, teaching portions and a few parts of application. 1 Peter chapter 1, this is in the 60s, and, G, and Peter is writing about what happened back in the Old Testament. Okay, He's writing in New Testament times. Watch verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, that's your eternal life, your salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, he's talking about Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace, that's again, that's the salvation, code word for the salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, watch, timeline from your perspective, they're back here writing about now, Peter's over here saying they wrote about your time period, and it's carrying over to where we are now. This is our salvation. They're writing about it, but verse 10 at the end says this grace that was to be yours, they searched, these prophets searched and inquired carefully, searching. What? Prophets writing this. God's telling they're writing this, and it's true. How? We've got to put that with this. And that goes with, what about, they're looking, Lord, what, what are they asking? Verse 11, inquiring what person, who, and what time, when, inquiring what person or time the, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, watch these two things, the sufferings of Christ, Holy Spirit's telling the prophets, predicting the sufferings of Christ, and, let me find my place, the subsequent glories. So here they are. God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in them is saying, they're writing about these sufferings, don't even understand it all, and these glories. We really like this part. The Messiah is going to come. It's going to be all these glories. Yeah, well, John's one of those people. John is one of those people. 
leave First Peter, go back to John chapter 1, and we'll see two passages there. John chapter 1, look at verse 29. John is one of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. It's been 400 years since a prophet has prophesied directly from the Lord, but the 400 silent years are over. And here's John, as we'll see next week, is very unique in history. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Verse 29. Verse 29, John chapter 1, the next day. Do y'all know what happened the day before? Here's the day before. Hey, John, he's down here baptizing huge crowds. He's baptizing people, telling them to repent, go in, get baptized in the water as a sign of getting your sins washed away. You're turning your life around. You're going to live for God. You're repenting. You're confessing your sin. You're actually naming. I am a this and a this and a this, and I'm guilty of that. But by God's grace, I'm going to turn around. I'm no longer relying on being a Jew. I know that's not good enough. I'm repenting of my sin. So John's down here doing this. People come up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet that, Matthew, that, that Moses says is coming? Nope. Then who are you? I'm a voice in the wilderness who's crying. I'm the forerunner of the Christ. The next day, look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. So just picture it. Here's John, group of people. And there comes Jesus. Don't know how far away Jesus is. Jesus is headed toward John's direction. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, hey, hey. Behold, the Lamb of God. Right there, you see him? He's cut. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Y'all know what the Lamb of God, the lambs of God in the Old Testament, you know what they were used for. They were sacrificed. Or if you wanted to use the scapegoat, that one, all the sin would be put on and he'd be taken out and cast out and cast away. Or the other one also has the sins of the nation put on him and he's killed. Behold, John says, the Lamb of God. God takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean, John? I have no clue. I have no clue. How's that going to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be these glories. Sufferings. I don't really understand. I think 1 Peter chapter 1, coupled with John chapter 1, verse number 29, leads us to where we're at in Matthew chapter 11. What do we have? Pay attention carefully. This seems to be a case. This John seems to be a case of the Holy of God leading a true prophet, in this case John, to declare something that is accurate, but he doesn't fully understand it. Let's continue. John correctly identifies that Jesus is the
God directly talks to him. Big advantage. He has the Holy Spirit in him when others don't. Huge advantage. Here's another one. John has what we call the Old Testament, and he can read that and study that and go down to the synagogues and keep hearing about that, and he can gauge the life of Christ compared to the Old Testament prophets. John does not have the fuller revelation that we now have. There's his preaching, and then there's a gap of time. And then Jesus, the Lamb of God, pays for the sin of the world by dying on a cross. He has no, he's not even going to be alive when this happens. He has no clue. that. But there's a gap. His preaching, gap. Jesus pays for the sins of the world. Gap, 53 days. 53 days until the Holy Spirit is poured out. Then a gap of at least 2,000 years before judgment is poured out on the world. And then there'll be a visible setting up of the kingdom. All of these gaps in time is throwing them out. Are you the one? Are you the one? And before we look at the second point this morning. How's that affect you? John's wrestling in his mind. He's struggling. He's doubting. How does that affect you? I need everybody, you at home. What does this mean to you? I'm going to be brief here. Let's just tell it like it is. Here's a fact. There, ladies and gentlemen, there will always be things in the Christian life. There will always in this life be things about how God operates the universe that is going to be confusing to us. We love God and the glorious ways of God and where God comes through for us. There are always going to be things that do not make sense to Christians. And if you don't I mean people who like go against God and it's going it looks like it's not just they're getting by with it that's confusing Lord they're opposing you and they're getting no 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 watch they're like thriving drives you crazy don't it They're not. They're opposing God. Look, they're fine. This was struggling. I mean, God's this person, not perfect, but boy, they really are a really strong Christian. Struggling financially, struggling relationally. 
Some of you are like, I know somebody that literally in what you just said went three for three. A Christian, really trying to live for the Lord, struggling. They keep getting bad physical reports. They feel horrible. They are struggling financially. And their relationships, people they love, their relationships are a real struggle. And the kicker on top of it, you can point to someone on the internet, someone on TV, someone in the industry, or someone you know personally. It's like, this Christian went three for three on those, and over here's a lost person who's, who's antagonistic toward God. They're like over three. They have no physical issues. They're super wealthy, and their relationships appear to be great. What's going on? You know what drove me crazy this week? I'm take a little risk here because I'm going to get more specific where I've talked in code until now. This puzzled me. This week, there was a newly ordained minister. I don't know hardly anything about him. Newly ordained minister, I think about five months ago, he became ordained. He took a stand for Christ, literally took a stand for Christ, at the risk of great ridicule, and he was ridiculed, and then he gets injured. Some of you are like, I already know where you're going, Jeff. There's a young man, young black man, who plays basketball for the Orlando Magic. And just this past week, y'all know, if you don't watch basketball, it's my favorite sport. The NBA has 22 teams. Some teams didn't make it, but they selected 22 teams. They've taken them down to Orlando, down at Disney World's Wide World Sports, and they've made what they're calling a bubble. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. You have to be tested. You have to go through a quarantine period. Once you get through that, you're coming in. They're keeping them in there about three months people that supply the food, all these various things. Over 300 players. So they do the national anthem before every, every game. Jonathan Isaac, young black man, stood for the national anthem. The first one out of 300 plus people to stand for the national anthem. Instead of kneeling in protest against our nation and in support of the organization and movement called Black Lives Matter. So I've kind of danced around that. You say, Jeff, so what's the big deal? Here, I, no one need, better not misquote me. I hope we all understand there is a difference between a belief in a fact that lowercase black lives matter, uppercase black lives matter, lowercase, the belief and the knowledge and the understanding that all black lives, those people were made in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. Jesus Christ died for black people. Do their lives matter? Every bit as much as any Asian person, any Jewish person, any Hispanic person, any Caucasian person. I believe in that. What we, me, you should, what we do not believe is what this organization, uppercase, Black Lives Matter. We don't support that. I don't support that. You say, Jeff, why not? Go read their website. I kept alluding to it. I read the website and I kept using code. Go look at the website. See what the three women who founded that. The front and center, they're very clear. It isn't about black lives. It's about the homosexual agenda and it's about agenda being, they literally say, their advancement of those two things is the front center of the movement. This young man, when asked, why did you stand and not take a knee like everybody else. His answer was a gospel answer and a grace answer. He says, I don't think that tells the whole story. He says, I don't think that's how you show that black lives matter. He says, I think the gospel shows that black lives matter. And he says, 
Again, that's not how I would show that. And his point is that I'm not going to take a knee in support of that organization. I know of another person in the baseball industry, when asked, he says, I only bow and only knee for God. Y'all understand that week to week, I have three people that I quote today. And I use these sources, and I bring up, and I say, this guy and this guy and this guy said this. I don't bow to any of those guys. We're a Southern Baptist church. We don't bow to the Baptists. We don't bow to the Southern Baptists. We, only bow, I, we don't bow to Black Lives Matter. We take a knee for God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And so this young man, so Jeff, what's your whole point? Two days later, in the next game, after scoring 16, 18 points in that game, the next game he blows out his ACL and his season is done. And I'm like, Lord, Lord, you're completely sovereign. This man went out on a limb. He may be a young Christian. Lord, what are you doing? Why did you let that happen? Do you know the only thing I could come up with? God must really love Jonathan Isaac. Because he's letting him go through. I've been praying for this young guy. I don't know that he's saved, but the answers I saw made me believe. But I'll guarantee you this. He's questioning. He's wondering. God, I did that and then that. I guarantee he's down there questioning his mind. So I'm praying for this guy. But I'm troubled. I'm perplexed. The last thing here. How does this apply? And I'm telling you, the second point today is much shorter. You're back in John 1. I should have had you stay there. I'm sorry about that. John 1. Look down at the verse 32. John 1, 32. Earlier he had said, Behold the Lamb of God. So this is at the baptism. Watch. John bore witness. When you're a witness, you're saying what you saw, heard, felt, what you witnessed. An event, experience. John bore witness. So here's John giving a testimony. Here's what he says, quote, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Y'all remember how it happened? Here it is. He fights Jesus, fusses, and fights. I don't need to be baptized. You just do it. Okay. Jesus doesn't need to repent, but Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. I believe John had his suspicions that, that Jesus is the Christ. But it wasn't until this moment. He says, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so in advance, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So then John says, I have seen and have borne witness. This is the Son of God. Watch. Behold, the Lamb of God. Hey, hey John, this forerunner, you remember going out and you're telling everybody the Christ, the Messiah, the kingdom is here? Guess what? It's the one that when you're baptizing, when you see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and remain on him, that'll be your cue. John says, I saw it. Jeff, what's the point? This is a real event. John knows what happened. He knows God talked to him. Some wild and crazy sign. And it happens just like God said it would. It confirms. He tells everybody, this is the one. And off Jesus goes and ministers. And John ministers for about a year. And then John's in prison. And now we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. And John's questioning. Very quick point before we hit our last thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. John's doubt in chapter 11 illustrates the superiority of our, I'm talking about our day today, our 2020. 
John's doubt in chapter 11 of Matthew illustrates the superiority of our having God's completed word in written form in addition to our experiences with God. I know that's a long statement. But John really experienced God. Two years later, he's questioning that experience. That tells me his doubt shows Jeff, you live in a great day because you our doubts. We must learn how to navigate our way in the scriptures. We must learn to memorize the passages that deal with our weak areas and strengthen us in the areas of weakness. This is the key. We have an advantage that John the Baptist never had. John didn't have a Bible in in the prison. If he would have, he never would have asked the question that he did. If he could have looked and said, that is the Christ. Oh, he's going to die on a cross. That fulfills Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. It's all coming together. Makes sense. He didn't have it. You do. Take advantage of the Word of God, it'll keep you from doubting what God is doing and allowing. Number two. Number two this morning, Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, very simple. Jesus reassures John. Guys, even the strongest faith in this room, those of you that have stronger faith than I do, I'm telling you, situations come, have come, situations will come in the future. My faith is going to get stretched. How will I respond? I don't bow to this man, but I will give a quote. MacArthur writes the following. Pretty important. MacArthur says, except for when we continually... Two groups... Except for when we continually, except for when we willingly continue in sin. So there's one scenario. Don't do that. Watch. Except for when we willingly continue in sin, we are numerable to doubting God's goodness and truth and believing Satan's lies as when we are suffering. 
If you're over here choosing to live in sin, you're going to doubt God's truth. You're going to doubt God's goodness. You're going to start buying a bunch of lies. But if you're in suffering, you're vulnerable. Those who suffer are vulnerable. Very quickly, look back at verse 2. This never hit me until this, this week. I never, it never occurred to me. And I'm pretty sure on this. I wouldn't die for it, but I'm going to offer it. You see verse 2? Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Hey, wait a minute. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, when he heard, could I propose to you, I've come to this conclusion. John never heard Jesus preach. Jesus comes down, gets baptized. Holy Spirit carries Jesus out to be tempted. Not that much later, John's in prison. Jesus goes up, starts ministry in Galilee. Guys, I don't think John ever heard Jesus preach. And I don't think John ever saw Jesus perform any miracle. John just heard things. real close and you watch and I think these two guys hear a sermon and teaching and preaching that like they've never heard before guys listen these are the disciples of John they're used to Holy Spirit empowered preaching of John powerful but it's not the content and the authority that Jesus has guys this is the second greatest preacher in all the world they're used to listening to now they listen to Jesus and the gap between the second greatest preacher in the world and the greatest preacher in the world is large and I think Jesus says you go back and tell them what you heard he wants to know if I'm the Messiah. You go tell him what you just heard. And I imagine these guys go back and say, John, no offense, man. You were, awesome. you, were, you were the best preacher we ever heard. You were the best preacher we ever heard. <laughs> you got to hear this man. Nobody talks like Done. I just need to know that. You go tell him what you heard. And oh, by the way, tell him what you saw. Matthew doesn't cover it. Look at Luke. Luke chapter 7. Watch this. Same scene, Luke chapter 7, verse number 20. And the men had come to him. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Luke tells us what happened. In that hour, if you boys don't mind, if y'all just stand right over there and you just watch a little bit and you'll know the answer to your question. You'll know what to tell John. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. You know what happens? Jesus starts performing all of the same miracles that he had performed back in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. Remember, he's looking, now you're looking at chapter 11, Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. What do they hear and see? The blind receive their sight. We read earlier, preached on two blind men receiving their sight. He says, the lame walk. I don't have time to delve into this. We've already preached these points. There was a lame man, a paralytic, who literally couldn't walk. And some guys tore the roof off where Jesus was teaching and preaching. And they lowered him down. And Jesus healed him. But he also said, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus is doing this again. A line of people... You guys need something to tell John. I tell you what, if you'll just stand right over there. You see this crowd of people? You see those blind people right there? You see the way their eyes are? You know this is no setup, right? We're not doing this.
Messiah. Isn't this about him? Yes, it's about the Christ Messiah, the anointed one. But watch, here's your clue. Your God will come and with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Well, what's going to happen when he comes? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 61, last verse. Isaiah 61, verse number 1. Here's this prophecy that we know Jesus goes in, into his hometown of Nazareth, stands and tells the people in um, the, the synagogue, he tells the people in the, in the synagogue of Nazareth, he reads this and says, oh, by the way, this is talking about me. What passage? Verse 60, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Look again at the top. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. You go tell John this. The, lame, the, the blind are seeing. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. And the poor are having the gospel preached. John will know what that means. So his answer, verse 4 and 5 of Matthew 11, is simply Jesus letting his teaching and his preaching and his miracles and his fulfilled prophecies serve as his credentials. Those are my credentials. Go give that to John. Translation. Here's the translation. Hey, John, when's the last time you've heard of any man doing even one of the things that I do every day? I do this every day. When's the last time you heard anyone giving sight to the blind? I do it all the time. When's the last time you heard anyone raising someone from the dead? You have to go way back hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament. Who healed? Oh, by the way, when Jesus raised the dead and healed the leper, he goes well above and beyond what Isaiah even prophesied. He does extra. Give that to John. And then as we close, Matthew chapter 11, verse 6 says, And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Tell John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This is a gentle rebuke. Guys, please catch what I'm saying. Go tell John, blessed is the one who's not offended. This has two things in it. It's a commendation for those who aren't offended, but it's a little bit of a warning. John, I was patient earlier. I'm patient. I know you struggle. No, watch. Jesus, knowing that the mysterious ways of God can cause us to struggle in our faith, I believe he's patient and allows room. Christians, listen. He allows us room to respectfully ask our questions of God and express our confusion. But in verse number 6, there's a bit of a warning to John and any others. There is a line. Don't cross the line. You can express your doubts. You can, you can express an honest question to the Lord. Lord, I'm confused by this. But don't cross the line. The Amplified Bible writes the following. Doubt that inquires and does not weaken faith is not evil. Doubt that inquires, Lord, I'm troubled by this. I don't understand. If it doesn't weaken your faith, it's not easy. It's not evil. Your last note this morning, if you will, comes out of verse 6. We are blessed. Who's the blessed person? Who's the happy? Who has the good life? We are blessed when God's confusing ways, not his glorious ways, not his normal ways, not his powerful ways. We love all of that. We are blessed when God's confusing ways do not cause us to lose heart, do not cause us to be cast down in despair, do not cause us to become angry and bitter at the Lord. And so, guys, I have to ask you this morning, 
Is there anything, I know you're finishing that note, is there anything in your past or in your present? You need to ask, is there anything that has caused me confusion and like some semblance of doubt in my faith? Has anything caused you to go further than doubt, all the way in confusion, to cross the line to despair, disbelief, anger, and bitterness? Someone listening to me right now, this is your heart. You are angry and bitter at God because of his confusing ways. Instead of just saying, Lord, I I need to express some things. I'll not have you raise your hands. I thought about doing that. We won't. wonder how many of us are shocked that Jesus hasn't come back yet. I am. Jeff, honestly, I'm telling you guys, I, I'm, I'm shocked. I literally thought the Lord would have come back. I started hearing preaching on the second coming of Christ back in 1982. I'm shocked. I had no clue I would ever see age 50. I believe Paul literally lived his life thinking any moment the Lord's coming back. I am shocked 2,000 years. So is he even coming? Don't ask that. Just say, Lord, I'm puzzled that you haven't come back yet. But I know you will. Here's one. Are you confused by how evil is gaining momentum? I mean, I'm telling you, I look at these articles and I I dare not tap on them. Just the headlines. (sighs) What's going on in this world? If you're not careful, you may want to ask, are you in control? Don't do it. Lord, I know you're in control. Why are, you letting, why are you letting evil just gather so much momentum, Lord? It seems like they're winning more than ever. Here's one. Very important question. Is anyone here in your core shaken by how God's people are mistreated? Maybe you, literally. You, this is you. You've remained faithful, but a former friend, a former co-worker, a former employee, a former empl- employer, a former spouse... They did the wrong thing. You were right. You were faithful to God. And here's the kicker. Years later, it looks like they're getting away with it. And you're like still paying a price for it. What's going on? I don't think he cares. Don't go there. Say, Lord, I'm struggling with why you're letting that happen. Somebody right now, you are literally perplexed because your struggle in whatever area it is, you can't believe that it's still going on. You're tempted to wonder, Do you see me? Do you hear me? You know I've been praying for that specific thing and it's hardly been lessened or has not been lessened at all. My loneliness, my sorrow, what's going on, God? Okay, tell him that. But don't come to the conclusion. You don't see, you don't hear, you don't care. Don't do that. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. This morning, we conclude with this thought. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Don't look for another Don't look for another. Christian, is something in your life perplexing you? You're struggling. It's puzzling. It doesn't make sense. It's confusing. Can I, number one, encourage us, me and you? First of all, we need to be realistic in our expectations. We need to be realistic. We need to be biblical in our expectations. Is something perplexing you? talking now to true Christians I want to give you some assurance if you are a true Christian let me tell you this on the authority of the word of God 
Listen, you can never lose your salvation faith in Christ. Nothing can rock your salvation faith in Christ. If anything ends up stealing and rocking and taking your salvation faith in Christ, you never had salvation faith. Nothing can do that. But at times, Christians, true Christians can be confused by the ways of God. We can be confused by the ways of God. I shared something just this week that perplexed me. I don't understand it. If I were God, I would not have let that happen to that young man. Can I encourage you with this? God allows us to express our heart to Him, our full heart. Talk to Him. Let me add this. You might even have a lot of passion. You might get louder than normal in talking with the Lord and expressing your heart. Christian, listen to me. God lets you share your request. You can make your request known to Him. He may give it, but He's not obligated. But let me warn you. God will not accept blatant unbelief. God, I don't believe you anymore. No, no, no. God will not accept that. Anger, outright anger and bitterness at God. He will not accept that. That's unacceptable. Question. Listen, when you question the Lord and you just get alone, maybe you're just whispering and broken, can't form the sentences, or maybe, again, you're speaking in louder tones with the Lord. He can handle that if you're being honest in expressing your doubt and not crossing the line. But if you're going to do that, can I encourage you? Let him talk when you're done. This is important. So share your heart, express, make your request known, but then let God talk. Patiently listen. He may, in that moment, whisper in your ear. He may not in that moment. It may be when you are regularly in the Word of God. Only those who are regularly in the Word of God have this opportunity. The Lord may cause a passage of Scripture just come alive. And it's an answer to what you were just talking to the Lord about a week earlier. God, I'm struggling. And then the Lord bring. It may be in a message you hear here. It may be today's message. Literally may be in an answer to someone like they just, just this week. God, I'm struggling with this. I don't understand. And God says, hey, by the way, John had it too. Express to me, but don't cross the line. And to the suffering, to the suffering, I say the following You are vulnerable. If you're in suffering, physically, financially, relationally, I mean, you're just suffering. I'm going to promise. MacArthur's right. You're vulnerable. But this is key. If you are the suffering, you have a unique opportunity to bring even more glory to God if you will live by faith amid the suffering. You have an opportunity. If you're suffering, you say, I wouldn't choose, I don't like it. Okay, I'm just telling you, you are vulnerable to doubt, but you've got a unique opportunity to do what others who are not in suffering can't do. You can glorify God and say, God, even in the midst of suffering, I still trust you. I don't understand all of it. I still trust you. I still love you. I praise you. What if you did that? That would mean the, the fiery trial of your faith that's more precious than that of gold would be to the praise and glory of God. Can I encourage you, in those moments of struggle, take inventory, inventory of all the blessings that God's already done that were undeserved. Father, 
Lord, I went long today and again. Lord, Lord, I didn't like this passage this week. But eventually you showed me that I'm like John. But I've got a lot of advantages that John doesn't have. Lord, help me to memorize your word. I pray that I'll be found often in the word. And it just squelches out our doubts. Lord, thank you. I have the Holy Spirit in me like he had. But God, the completed Bible in my own language, what a gift. Lord, I have four or five of them. Thank you. Lord, thank you we have freedom together. Lord, thank you that I'm not in prison, cut off from my Bible, cut off from other Christians, cut off from ministry opportunities, feeling forgotten, being attacked all alone and in isolation by demonic forces. Thank you that I'm not there today. But God, I'm thinking of Hebrew. Lord, Hebrews 13, verse number 3. Whoever wrote that book says that we are supposed to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, there are some people today that are just like John. They're cut off from the Word of God. They're cut off from Christian fellowship. Lord, they need some help. So, Lord, we lift them up to you. They've been faithful to you, God. You've allowed it. You've allowed it. I don't understand it. And, Lord, they're struggling. Somebody today is struggling. Lord, let this congregation right now pray fervently for those people. Lord, let us lift them up. Lord, some of them are in China and North Korea. Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, Turkey, Africa, all across. Lord, be with those people. Iran. Our brothers and sisters struggling, God. Please help them. Lord, let today, it's turning nighttime for them. Don't let tonight be like the other nights. Let tonight, Lord, just the Holy Spirit come in. Let them remember verses of Scripture they haven't been able to remember before now. And let it feed their soul and strengthen their soul, even if need be, all the way to having their head cut off. Let them love you. And then, Lord, if their blood is shed, let it just affect the people who see that and convict them and show them that there is something to this Jesus Christ that's worth dying for. Lord, let us love you that way. We trust you for what's coming in the days ahead. Lord, I pray for that young man, Jonathan Isaac. I don't know what he's going through today. I don't even know if he's a Christian, but he gave a a Bible answer. Lord, if he's my brother... Would you minister to him? He stood meekly. And you allowed that to happen. Love on him, Lord. Comfort him. Heal him. Get the glory in the end. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys. Love you. Like I said, I didn't really like this passage. No, I'm kidding. Uh, There's a lot to it. Hey, have a great week. We love you. Have a wonderful week.